Hello and welcome back to the Killer Kind Podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie Miller, as always. So I left you guys with my last Killer October episode of 2023. Now, if you've been around for a while, you'll know that I usually finish the year with my October episodes, mainly because November and December, and really just the first part of January for me, are crazy. I mean, the holidays are crazy for everyone. So I know you guys understand. But when I finished my last episode, I completely forgot to mention my holiday break. So I just decided that I would find a way to put out one more episode before the end of the year. Clearly, it took some time, but we're here. We made it. (laughs) Now, before we get started, I wanted to say thank you to everyone who listened to my Killer October episodes. Those are some of my favorites to cover because I love the spooky season, as I, as you all know, and I usually can get a little more creative and just dive into cases that I wouldn't normally cover. So I just wanted to say thank you for the support on those episodes. Now, switching gears completely, going from the spooky season straight into the joyful Christmas season. Today's case takes place around Christmas time in 1990. But this case will not give you the Hallmark Christmas movie warm and fuzzies. Today's case will show you just how evil people can be, no matter what time of year it is. So, without further ado, let's dive in to the Tita Cabin murders. Rolf Tita was born on September 29, 1939, in Germany. When he was just 11 years old, he and his mother immigrated to the U.S. to live the American dream. Rolf would go on to meet the love of his life, Kay Tidwell, in his early 20s. Kay was born on January 16, 1941, in Nevada to Eugene and Beth Tidwell. Not long after the two started dating, they were married. They got married on May 26, 1963 in Salt Lake City, Utah, but they eventually relocated to Humble, Texas. The Titas settled down in Humble and started making a good life for themselves. They were very active in their church, they had good jobs, and were doing well. Rolf was a successful salesman, And in 1969, he opened his own business called Skyline Equipment in Houston. Now, the only thing missing for the Titas were children. However, when they decided they wanted to start a family, it turned out to be harder than they thought. After a few years into their marriage and having trouble conceiving, they realized they may not be able to have children of their own. So they ultimately decided to adopt. They adopted their first daughter, Lene, then Three years later, they adopted their second child, a son named Sean. Then, just within a couple of weeks of adopting Sean, Kay found out that she was actually two months pregnant with a little girl that they would later name Trisha. And they were thrilled, probably a little shocked, but they were over the moon to have one of their own and really have a big family that they had always dreamed about. So, the Titas lived a good life. That was until things took a tragic turn in 1990, which is where our case takes place today. As Christmas approached that year, the daughters of Rolf and Kay were getting very excited 
20-year-old Lene and 16-year-old Trish loved this time of year. Their family had a beautiful tradition where they would spend the holidays in their family cabin in the mountains of Utah. The cabin was in Weber Canyon near Oakley, and it was actually more than two miles off a regular road, and it was nicknamed Tita's Tranquility for the peace and solitude that it offered. And it was also just a beautiful location. It was surrounded by big trees and I'm sure a blanket of snow in the winter. And it was positioned near a river. It sounds very peaceful. But like I said, it was remote. So remote that it could only be reached by a snowmobile, which honestly sounds like my worst nightmare. <laughs> but once I was there, I could totally see myself seeing past the that aspect and seeing why the family loved it so much. Now, every year, the family would host a big Christmas party with their friends and family. So, the plans for Christmas this year were no different than any other. On Thursday, December 20th, Kay and her son Sean flew out to Oakley, where Kay's sister Claudia was waiting at the airport to pick them up. Rolf and the two daughters were coming up the following day. Now, On the 20th, after Kay and Claudia and Sean arrived to the area, they parked the car to get out, and they were prepared to take the snowmobile up to the cabin. However, they noticed something out of the ordinary. Halfway up to the cabin, they ended up passing a man in his early 20s or so who just seemed odd, mainly because he was wearing jeans, tennis shoes, and a light jacket. Now, here in Alabama, (laughs) you wouldn't think anything of that because it doesn't get that cold here. However, these people were taking snowmobiles up to their cabin. Clearly, there was snow on the ground. Tennis shoes didn't make any sense. Not only that, it was negative 20 degrees on this particular day. So Kay, being the kind-hearted, lovely woman that she was, was concerned about this guy. So she pulls over to ask the guy if he needed any help and if he was okay. And the guy just completely ignores Kay and just keeps walking by her. Kay was a little unnerved by the guy, but tried to brush it off. So they ultimately made their way up to the cabin as planned. They had a nice dinner together and they all three slept at the cabin that night. All was well. The following day, Rolf, Lene, and Trish boarded their flight to Oakley. Now, once they arrived at the cabin, Kay mentions the strange encounter she had with the guy on their way there the day before. And Kay was still just kind of unnerved and just felt uneasy about this guy. For some reason, she didn't really know why she couldn't shake it. So she told Rolf that she wanted him to bring the shotguns up to the cabin when he could. I'll pause and say, I don't, I don't know exactly where the guns were. Clearly, they had, they had them in Oakley. I mean, obviously, you're not going to fly with a loaded weapon. So I'm assuming they were stored wherever they left the car, whether they were in the car or in this little like parking garage area where they had to leave the car. Not sure. Either way, the guns were not there. However, Rolf told Kay that she was overreacting Oakley was a small town with very, very minimal crime. I read somewhere that in the last 100 years, there had only been one violent incident 
and it was actually just a road rage shooting. So, and besides that, there was maybe a handful of burglaries, but nothing else that would have caused Rolf to think his family was anything but safe in their cabin. Ultimately, though, Kay convinced Rolf to bring the shotguns up to the cabin, just to put her mind at ease. So, he went down around where they parked the car, loaded up the shotguns, and made his way back up to the cabin. Around this time, Claudia decided she needed to go into town and do some last-minute Christmas shopping. While she was gone, the Tita family unpacked their suitcases, they wrapped some Christmas presents, getting ready for the Christmas party that they were set to have in just a few days. That evening, Sean asked to stay with his aunt Claudia. So, Rolf dropped Sean off at his aunt's house for the night. Then, the rest of the Tita family decided to stay with Kay's mother, who was 72 years old. They spent a wholesome night at Beth's house, just catching up, and I'm sure talking about previous Christmases and traditions, and they just had a great night together. The following day, on the 22nd, around noon, Kay, Beth, and Lene headed over to the Tita cabin. I didn't read anything that said where Rolf and Trisha were at this time. They were either back at Beth's house or stayed in town doing some Christmas shopping or something along those lines. But either way, as Kay, Beth, and Lene make it to the cabin on their snowmobiles, Lene sees someone in the master bedroom as they're pulling up to the house. She immediately thinks it's her cousin David who was coming up for the big Christmas party and she thought maybe he had arrived early to surprise them. Well, Lene actually ran inside and first went to the kitchen to run her hands under some warm water because they were freezing from the ride up on the snowmobile. And as she's standing at the sink, she notices a dark figure standing behind the fridge. Lene said she sort of starts laughing to herself, thinking it's still her cousin. She thinks he's trying to scare her, so she pretends not to notice him. So she stands there and waits for the surprise. However, in a matter of seconds, a man with what she described as frizzy hair steps out from behind the fridge and points a gun at the 20-year-old. She has no idea who this guy is. It's certainly not her cousin David. Again, almost immediately, the guy tells Lene to call out to her mother and grandmother. As they made their way up the stairs and into the cabin, another man with thick Coke bottle-like glasses comes out of nowhere and points a gun at Kay and Beth as well. Kay immediately starts pleading with the two men. You know, I'll give you anything you want. Why are you doing this? I'll do anything. Just don't hurt us. Without saying a word, though, the man with the frizzy hair pointed his gun at Kay and shot her. Then, a few seconds later, he shot and killed Beth. Lene was spared, however. The two men dragged her to a back bedroom, duct-taped a dirty sock over her mouth, and tied her hands and feet together. Oddly enough, Lene would later state that the man with the Coke bottle glasses brought their family dog into the room with her as to, I guess, comfort her in a way, which I don't really know if she found comforting, but it at least seemed that this second guy was somewhat having a heart behind what they were doing. I don't know if you can really call it that or not, but 
either way, it was a kind of a kind gesture, depending on what, you know, based on what was going on. After that, the two men went back out to where Kate and Beth's bodies were, and they took all of their jewelry off of them. They took any money they had on, and really anything of value that they had, they took. After they collected everything they wanted, they dragged their bodies out to the deck and covered them with snow. Now, in the meantime, Lene is panicking because she knows that her father, Rolf, and her sister, Trisha, are on their way up to the cabin as well. And she doesn't want them to meet the same fate that her mother and grandmother just did. So she comes up with a plan. She decides to tell the two men that there's a car out in the garage. She knows where the keys are so they can take the car and they can go. At least that's her hope. So the two men do end up seeming interested. So they grab Lene and follow her to the garage while one of the men held a gun to her back the whole way. So they make their way to the garage. However, unfortunately, Lene's plan doesn't work. The two men weren't taking the car and they were not leaving. And not long after that, the two men and Lene heard another snowmobile pulling up and Lene's heart sank. The two men initially hid in the garage before they realized who it was pulling up to the house. Once the snowmobile made it up to the cabin, and when Rolf and Trisha started walking towards the front door of the house, the man with the frizzy hair escorted Lene with the gun, still up to her back, to the front of the house as well. Lene remembers looking into her father's eyes as she starts crying. Just a few short seconds later, the second man stepped out from behind the house and held a gun up to Rolf and Trisha. The man demanded Rolf empty his pockets and give him everything that he had. He did as the man asked, and while he was emptying out his pockets, Rolf did the same thing that Kay did. She began begging the guys not to hurt his family and telling him that he would do anything and give him anything that they wanted. Just don't hurt my family. Now, things take a turn when the frizzy-haired guy tells the other guy to shoot Rolf. The guy cocks his gun, but just stands there, clearly not wanting to do it. So after about 30 seconds, the first guy takes his gun off of Lene's back, points it at Rolf, and pulls the trigger. However, the gun doesn't go off. He pulls the trigger again, and nothing. Frustrated, the guy pulls the trigger a third time, and this time it actually does go off, shooting Rolf in the face. Lene said that she just knew her dad was dead. Trisha freaks out and starts screaming and crying. She would later tell 48 Hours that the blast was so loud and so close that she could feel it. From there, the two men spot these two gas tanks that the Tita family had used to fill up their snowmobiles. And after spotting these tanks, they started to douse the house and Rolf's body in gasoline with the plan to set everything on fire. They also fired one more shot into the back of Rolf's head as they poured gasoline on him. I mean, how evil can these two men be? They then loaded up the two snowmobiles with everything they had gathered to steal from the house. They ordered the two girls to drive them down to 
the area where the cars are. But before they do that, they light the house on fire and take off down the mountain. As they're making their way down, the girls noticed that their uncle, Randy, was driving up from the parking lot area. He's pretty close to where everyone parks the car before getting on the snowmobiles. And Randy sees the two girls as well, and he just waves at them, and he's like, you know, hey, like, what's going on? And he would later say that he thought the two girls were riding with their boyfriends or something like that, not thinking anything of it. Now, the two girls did not wave back at Randy, which he did think was odd, but he just thought that they were embarrassed and maybe didn't want to wave at their uncle in front of their boyfriends, you know, that sort of thing. However, Lene said that they didn't want to wave back only because they didn't want the two men to know that they knew with this guy. Because maybe if they had found out that this man was family, that they would follow him and kill him as well. In the meantime, the two men and the Tita sisters had made it to the parking area and the men started unloading everything they had stolen from the house and throwing it into the Tita family car, which was a Lincoln Town car. During this time, the frizzy-haired guy pulls out a knife or maybe like lifts up his shirt to expose the knife, something like that, and he shows it to the girls. And he says something along the lines of, don't worry, I'm just as good with this as I am with a gun. Basically threatening the two girls not to try anything. As if they weren't already scared enough. But anyways, about this time, the girls spot their Uncle Randy again. And he, at this point, is calling out to Lene and Trisha. And he's basically trying to flag them down. When the two men see this, they force the girls into the car and they take off down the road. Again, Randy's confused, and now he's a little concerned. He hops on his snowmobile and starts to head up to his brother's cabin. He figures, at the very least, he'll talk to Rolf and find out what the two girls were up to with these two random guys. But not even a minute later, Randy spots someone coming up on a snowmobile. He wasn't wearing a coat. He was wearing no helmet, no gloves, which again, extremely unusual for this season. But that wasn't all. The man was bleeding. This man's face was swollen and bloody. Randy said he was concerned at first, but he went into total shock when he realized it was his brother, Rolf. That's right. Randy called out to his brother and Rolf was shocked that he had ran into someone that he knew because his eyes were practically swollen shut so he could barely see if he could see at all. Randy said he was horrified by what he saw. Rolf's head and face were huge and swollen from his injuries. Rolf immediately told his brother that his wife and mother-in-law had been killed. He had been shot and his two daughters had just been kidnapped and he was trying to follow them. Rolf's story is insane. Apparently, when he had been shot, he played dead until the two men were gone. Come to find out later, he had been shot with a birdshot shotgun. Some of you may instantly know what that means. I, however, (laughs) did not. But this was actually a birdshot shotgun, like casing or bullet, whatever you want to call it. Um, Not like a regular bullet. I didn't understand what that meant, but apparently the bullet casing was filled with a bunch of metal pieces. Now, obviously at close range, this can still kill someone, as we know. 
but Rolf got lucky in this case. However, he was also, as we know, doused in gasoline, and he had actually caught on fire. So when the snowmobiles were gone, he waited till he couldn't hear them any longer. He jumped up and ran inside to the shower and put the fire out. Luckily, he was okay as far as the fire goes. He did suffer from an injury to his arm. Apparently, his ski jacket had caught on fire and melted to his arm, so he had to rip that jacket off. After putting the fire out in the shower, he ran outside, jumped on one of the snowmobiles, and took off down the mountain trying to save his daughters. Now, once Rolf told Randy all this, Randy got his brother into his car and the two took off onto Canyon Road in the direction of the Lincoln Town Car that the girls were in. They did eventually catch up to them, but at this point, they didn't really know what to do. I mean, they caught up to them, but, you know, all they could really do was follow them. Now, Randy was just as concerned about getting his brother some medical attention. So, as he's driving, he tries to call 911. This was 1990. It was surprising that Randy even had a mobile phone, but luckily he did. It took him a while to find a signal, but eventually the phone connected to a nearby cell tower and his call went through. And he was able to tell them everything that happened to the Tita family, where the two girls were, what kind of car they were in, and that he needed a helicopter for his brother because he was in bad shape. As soon as he got all the information out, the signal dropped. Randy decided to pull into a nearby gas station where he used a payphone to call 911 again. Meanwhile, the sisters are in the car with these two guys. Trisha remembers looking over at the speedometer and realizing they were going over 90 miles an hour. And about that time, they pass a police car. So this gives the girls a glimmer of hope. Luckily, the police car immediately whips it around and starts following their vehicle. Then a high-speed chase ensued. They busted through at least one police roadblock before losing control of the car and sliding off the road and getting stuck on an embankment. The chase ended about 40 miles away from the Tita's cabin. When the car comes to a stop, the girls turn around to see a huge line of cars and dozens of people including civilians and police officers, with their guns drawn. Lene panics at first and thinks, what if these people don't know that we're hostages? What if they think that we're a part of some crime and they start shooting us? So she grabs Trisha's hands and yells at her to duck, waiting for gunshots to ring out. Luckily, that doesn't happen. Police ascend on the car with their guns drawn, and are able to drag the two men out without getting anyone hurt. At around the same time, a helicopter arrived for Rolf at that gas station where he and his brother had stopped. He was airlifted to a nearby hospital, and Rolf ultimately made a miraculous recovery. I mean, I don't, I don't know about you, but can we do like a slow clap? for Rolf for a second. I mean, this man is amazing. This is what happens when you have a lot of adrenaline and when you're a parent trying to save your kid. Am I right? Now, it didn't take long for police to realize who these two men were and what all had gone on. Um, So they decided to go up to the Tita cabin and survey the scene. And what they found was horrific. 
One of the officers said it looked like a complete war zone. He said he saw bullet holes going through the staircase. He saw blood splatter in the kitchen as well as a bloody smeared handprint on one of the corners of the walls. It was a tough scene to look at. Now, during their survey of the home, they find a video camera. And when they turn it on, they immediately see the two men that had killed Kay and Beth. The frizzy-haired guy was 26-year-old Vaughn Taylor, and the guy with the glasses was 22-year-old Edward Deli. In the video, the two men recorded themselves opening the gifts under the Tita's family Christmas tree. Vaughn Taylor would read the names of who the gifts were going to, and then he would proceed to open the gift and make jokes about them. Just very nonchalant, no emotion on their faces, nothing. You can Google and find this video. I'll try to leave a link to um, some clips for you. But just hateful. I mean, zero remorse, zero emotion, pure evil. Both of these men had served time, shockingly enough, at the Utah State Penitentiary. Taylor was there for aggravated burglary, shocker, and Deli was there for arson. Again, surprise, surprise. They had met each other at a halfway house after being released. The idea of the halfway house was for former inmates to slowly re-enter society. They were there to find jobs and kind of get a little help getting back on their feet. But that's not what these two guys did. They ultimately left the halfway house, hitchhiked to Oakley, where Vaughn's father also had a cabin in the area. And for about a week prior to the murders, they spent time burglarizing other cabins in the area. It was Vaughn Taylor that was actually seen by Kay on that December 20th, the guy that she stopped to ask if he was okay because he was wearing such light clothes despite the weather. It's reported that Vaughn was scoping out the area that day, but it wasn't until the 22nd that they made their move on the Tita's cabin. Once inside, it was clear the two men had made themselves a home. There were signs of the men sleeping in the beds, eating the family's food, and as we know, going through the Christmas presents and likely just looking for anything valuable they could get their hands on. The original plan was to steal the Tita family's car and flee to New York after the robbery. And that remained the plan even after they kidnapped the two girls. They told Trisha and Lene that they were going to drive up to New York where they would ultimately let the girls go, although Lene never believed that for a second. The two men were ultimately charged with two counts of first-degree murder, one count of attempted first-degree murder, two counts of aggravated kidnapping, aggravated assault, theft, arson, and failure to adhere to a police signal to stop. Both men pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. Are we surprised? No. But after a court evaluation, both men were deemed fit to stand trial. Again, are we surprised? No. <laughs> Five months later, Vaughn Taylor pleaded guilty to two counts of capital murder in exchange for all of the other charges being dropped. Which sounds crazy because the Tita family was seeking the death penalty for the murder charges. So why plead guilty to that when the other charges held a much lesser sentence? But either way, 
I'm not a lawyer. I'm not his lawyer. That's for sure. So who knows what was going on in their heads. But that's what happened. <laughs> he did have to go through a sentencing hearing where there was evidence that was pre- presented showing that Vaughn Taylor was the ringleader of the whole thing. And he was the one who had shot and killed the two women. Vaughn Taylor received the death penalty, two counts, and he has been sitting on death row ever since. He has since tried to have his sentence reduced multiple times. On May 22, 2023, just earlier this year, he filed his fifth appeal. And I haven't heard an update on this case since August of this year. And at that point, there had been no response made by the state of Utah. As for Edward Delhi, he stood by his not guilty plea and forced the family to sit through a trial. And he ultimately had to face a jury. A medical examiner explained that Kay Tita had been shot five times and the fatal shot being the fifth shot to her chest. Beth had been shot three times, and the fatal shot for her was the final shot, which was to her head. The gun used to kill both women was a forty-four caliber handgun. Trisha and Lene both testified and said that was the gun used by Vaughn Taylor during the whole ordeal. But the best part of the trial was that Rolf Tita himself took the stand. And when I tell you I wish I could have been there to see Edward's face, oh, I would have paid a lot of money. People in the courtroom reported looking at Edward when Rolf walked in. It was very clear that he was in shock because he certainly thought that Rolf was dead, yet here he was walking into that courtroom. I mean, again, Rolf, you're my hero. I love you. (laughs) Rolf said he wanted nothing more than to walk into that courtroom and look Edward Deli in the eye, and he got his wish. Now, because there was evidence that Vaughn Taylor had been the ringleader, and he had been the one to pull the trigger and ultimately kill Kay and Beth, the jury had a hard time with convicting Edward. However, after a 12 and a half hour deliberation, they came back with a verdict. Guilty of second degree murder. There was one juror who didn't believe Edward should have received the death penalty. However, after some negotiation, they agreed on a lesser charge of second-degree murder. I don't really know how I feel about that. I mean, to me, he's just as guilty as Vaughn. To the family, he's just as guilty as Vaughn. But either way, because he received the conviction of second-degree murder, the death penalty was off the table. But the good thing, though was that he still received a sentence of life in prison. He does have the possibility of parole. After both men had been sentenced, the Tita family filed a wrongful death lawsuit against the state of Utah for Kay and Beth's deaths. They said it wasn't about the money, but it was about acknowledging that they had messed up and the deaths of their family members could have been prevented. The state failed to detain the two men after they escaped from the halfway house. They were only allowed to leave to look for jobs, but once they realized they had ran away, they should have been captured. On the 22nd of December, Vaughn Taylor had called another guy from the halfway house named Scott Manley and told him everything that they were doing. He told Scott that they had guns, that they were in Oakley, that they had been burglarizing different cabins, and at the time of the phone call, he was inside the Tita family's home, 
waiting for them to return. Then he said he was going to, quote, waste the parents and the son and that he was going to take the girls and use them as a human shield so he could get to New York. It's unclear to me if they had really been surveying this house for a while and kind of keeping like tabs on this family, finding out who they are, or if they just kind of came up with this plan while at the house, seeing like family pictures and assuming these people would all be here. You know, it's kind of hard to say, but clearly they had a plan. After the phone call, Scott immediately reported this to the halfway house officials, and they basically did nothing and ultimately did nothing to prevent the deaths of Kay and Beth. Sadly, in September 1992, a judge ruled that the state of Utah was not responsible. There were some sort of laws in place protecting the government from any liability. In 1992, Lene Tita received a letter from Edward Delhi expressing his sincerest apologies for his involvement in the crimes. He said he was a different person now, and he hoped that she would forgive him. It would take 10 long years but Lene wrote Edward back, and she told him that she was finally able to forgive him. Lene says she feels that she gained her freedom back by choosing to forgive Delhi. Trisha told 48 Hours that after the cabin was burnt and after the torture her family went through, they rebuilt the cabin and made it better than ever. Lene said they go up there to this day and create fond memories with their families. Trisha said that these two men took their mom and their grams, but that's where it ends. They won't take away this place that they love. Sadly, Rolf passed away in 2008 from cancer. He had remarried and he passed away surrounded by his family, his loving children, and his new wife. Trisha and Lene have had several kids between them and are living a very happy and beautiful life. And that is the case of the Tita family murders. What a wild ride, am I right? I mean, just two unbelievably evil guys torturing this family. I mean, just horrible and senseless crimes. And I don't know about you, but I'm so glad that it ended the way that it did for Trisha and Lene. It could have been so much worse for them. I know that's kind of what I kept thinking when I first heard about this case and when I first started looking into it. But luckily, they came out of it physically unscathed. And again, let's give a shout out to Rolf Tita. I mean, that man is my hero. I mean, what's it like having a dad that would do anything like that for you? Go through something that horrific and fight to live to try and save you. Couldn't be my dad. But anyways, enough about my daddy issues. Speaking of family issues, though. I wanted to take a second to talk about this time of year and say that my thoughts and prayers are with everyone this year that does have family problems. Family issues around the holidays are not fun. Christmas and the holidays should be exciting and again, joyful, but that isn't always the case for everyone. Luckily, it is for me now, but it used to be a time of year that I dreaded. So if you're feeling that way this Christmas, if you're dealing with that this time of year, just know that it's almost over, that you're not alone, and that you are strong, and you can get through anything. Maybe you've lost someone this year, 
and you are dreading the idea of getting the family together because they that person won't be there. I just want you to know that again, you're not alone and that you're in my thoughts and I hope that you all will join me in prayer and, and just keeping your, them in your thoughts this season. So sorry to get that deep on you guys, but I've just been reminded through, you know, friends and other people I've talked to this year that Christmas can be a tough time of year. We always want to be excited and happy about Christmas, but that's not always the case for everybody. And that's not always the case every year. So just reach out to a friend or someone you know that may need some extra love this time of year. But anyways, that is going to do it for me this episode. Um, And that's going to do it for me this year. Thank you guys so much for an amazing year. Thank you for all the support of the show and just letting me know how much you love it and really bugging me when I don't get out an episode. It really keeps me going and encourages me to keep this thing going that I love so much. With that said, that'll do it for me. I'll be back January 8th, 2024, which sounds crazy, with the first episode of a brand new season. You won't want to miss it. I hope everyone has a great holiday season and a very happy new year. Until then, stay safe. Love you guys. Bye.